Welcome to Undisciplined. I'm your host, Ashley Rohde. This week, we're talking about gleaning information from the past to predict our future. Although the threat of climate change is never far from the collective consciousness, the recent UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, Scotland, reinforced the urgency of the threat of human-induced climate change on humans and biological communities. The current climate change event is the first time that the climate has been so dramatically changed by human actions. But it isn't the first time that Earth has experienced rapid climate change. As instructed by Albert Einstein, to learn about our future, we must look to the past. Paleontologists who study ancient life and ancient climates offer insight into how natural ecosystems might change if our planet's climate continues to warm. This week, I'm talking with Dr. Joshua Lively, the curator of paleontology at the Utah State University Eastern Prehistoric Museum. Dr. Lively studies the evolution of organisms and the dynamics of ecosystems from the late Cretaceous period between about 90 million and 66 million years ago. He has published research in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology and El Coringa, an Australasian journal of paleontology. Dr. Lively, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Will you please paint a picture for me? I know you get this question a lot, but explain what Earth was really like 90 million years ago. What was the climate like? What kinds of plants and animals existed? And how were they interacting? Yeah, absolutely. So 90 million years ago, during the late Cretaceous time period, uh, the planet looked very different than it does today. You have connections between South America, Antarctica, and Australia that still exist, Uh, India is much closer to Madagascar than it is to modern-day Eurasia. But if we take a North America-centric approach, it looks pretty similar today. The big difference being this massive seaway that bisects North America, connecting the Gulf of Mexico with the Arctic Ocean. But you also had some of the highest sea levels in Earth history because there was no ice at least no evidence of ice at the poles, either the north or the south. So what kinds of plants and animals did exist? I mean, I think about dinosaurs, but of course I grew up on pop culture. So when I think about dinosaurs, <laughs> I think about Jurassic Park. And But I do understand that, you know, there were lots of different dinosaurs that lived in different periods and, and evolved at completely different times. So what did the animals really look like? For sure. During the late Cretaceous on land, that's where most people... Yeah, much like you described, are more comfortable. Folks understand, oh, there were dinosaurs around. You know, if you look at any given snapshot throughout the late Cretaceous, you have very different species that are around. For example, at the very end of the Cretaceous, right before dinosaurs or non-bird dinosaurs go extinct, you've got Tyrannosaurus rex, you have Triceratops. In Utah, you have Taurosaurus. And if you go just 10 million years earlier, you have a completely different cast of characters. You have a different Tyrannosaur living in Utah called Teratophonius. You have several other different species of horned dinosaurs. But all throughout this, you know, the dinosaur, different dinosaur species come and go. Uh, but there were some components to the ecosystem uh, on land and in freshwater systems that would look very familiar to today. You have crocodilians, you have turtles. You have uh, small mammals running around uh, the feet of uh, the dinosaurs. Uh, so there, you actually get quite a few different groups of organisms living in places like Utah 75, 76 million years ago that you get 
today, at least in other parts of the world. We don't have crocs. We don't have as many turtles uh, here today. But that's really a product of this being uh, the climate in the Western U.S. being a much hotter, much hotter, much uh, wetter uh, environment. Then. It was much hotter and wetter then. Yes. Than it is now. Yes. Okay. For sure. Your research so far in your career has primarily focused on mosasaurs. Did I pronounce that correctly? That is correct. Okay. So mosasaurs, which were giant marine lizards. And I would love for you to describe those to me also, because of course, again, pulling on pop culture, I immediately think of Godzilla, like rising up out of the ocean. And that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, my impression is that mosasaurs weren't a single species. So was it a genus of animals or a family of animals? How many species were there and, and kind of what, what were they doing? What did they get up to? Yeah. So mosasaurs were a, you know, the equivalent of, I guess, a family. Uh, we don't really use yeah, family order quite as much as uh, we used to. Uh, n- not as much as they teach you in high school, anyway. Uh, we instead, uh, you know, more look at the family tree of organisms and use groups of organisms called clades. So mosasaurs were a group of organisms uh, with many species, many genera, and uh, they were around for the latter portion of the late Cretaceous. So uh, you know, there's a big argument right now. Uh, uh, very much still a lively scientific debate uh, about what exactly mosasaurs are. Are they more closely related to monitor lizards? Are they more closely related to snakes? So, and and that's important because it actually tells us a lot about when mosasaurs first show up. And um, you know, depending on what the earliest mosasaurs actually are. The oldest mosasaur might be closer to 95 million years ago, a million years old, uh, could be closer to 120 million years old. You know, uh, very quickly after that, they start diversifying into a lot of different niches within the uh, marine ecosystem. And what does that mean? What's a niche? Can you explain that to me? Yeah, that's a good question. So a niche is basically the role an organism plays in their ecosystem. So for mosasaurs, you know, most people think of that critter and how it's massive and jumps out of the water and eats a great white shark. Yeah, there were definitely some mosasaurs that served the role of being the apex predators in the ocean. And uh, as a group, mosasaurs definitely became those top predators in the marine ecosystem by the end of the Cretaceous, by the end of the age of dinosaurs. But there were other mosasaurs that were more specialized, some that were specific to eating fish based on the shape of their teeth, as well as some preserved gut contents. There were also even mosasaurs that were specialized for eating mollusks, things like clams, oysters, uh, so hard-shelled animals that live in the ocean. Wow, so they were incredibly diverse. Why does this group in particular interest you? Why? What is the fascination with um, learning so much about such a diverse group of animals that is extinct? Absolutely. So for a couple of reasons, uh, first of all, I got my start um, actually doing research on fossil um, turtles, freshwater turtles from the age of dinosaurs. And one thing that you get spoiled in working with turtles is that for every single dinosaur fossil you find, you find about 10, 15, 20 turtle fossils. So there's a much greater sample size. And that, even though mosasaurs are very large 
charismatic animals just like dinosaurs, because they uh, lived in a marine environment, they're very easy to preserve. So there are actually thousands of Mosasaurus specimens across uh, in museums across North America and around the world. Um, some Mosasaurs, then you can really start to ask biological questions by studying them. And, you know, Mosasaurs are important to me, too, because they represent this very uh, abundant, very diverse group living in a marine environment during this very warm period of Earth's history. And if you look at a time period like the Cretaceous, um, we can kind of use that quote, uh, you know, the past is the key to the present, the past is the key to the future. Uh, so the more we uh, understand basically the biological experiment, if you want to call it that, that our planet has run, uh, if we understand that better, uh, then we can better predict how organisms are going to respond to future, um, future globally warm temperatures. I think that's a really important point, and it leads really nicely into my next question, which is, um, you know, I, I think your training is really interesting because you are both a geologist and an evolutionary biologist. Absolutely. And I, and I think you picked a really interesting time in Earth's history to focus on as an evolutionary biologist because the late Cretaceous period is the time immediately before, <laughs> famously, an asteroid struck the Earth and caused a huge extinction event, killing off the dinosaurs as well as many other species, including these, you know, very charismatic mosasaurs. So how does one study evolution right before and during a major extinction event like that happened 66 million years ago? You know, like, what does your field work look like? What is what is your day to day research really entail? For sure. You know, uh, I always uh, talk about modern biology as being a lot more convenient than paleontology. <laughs> you can go I out, would think so. <laughs> yeah, you can go out and observe what these organisms are doing. Uh, you can collect tissue samples to uh, study their DNA and figure out how they are related to one another. I don't want to say that's easy, but it's a, in a way a lot easier than uh, what we have to do as paleontologists. So, you know, day to day, it really uh, varies quite a lot. Uh, for someone like me, because I do definitely pull from both my geological and uh, uh, biological training. So, you know, studying evolution in deep time where we don't have the uh, the convenience of, uh, you know, collecting DNA samples, uh, you have to look for ways for other ways to study uh, the evolution of a group. And uh, we do that by very detailed anatomical studies on the skeletons of uh, these organisms on uh, the fossils themselves. This ultimately comes down to, you know, uh, you know, laying fossils out, comparing them side by side, uh, typically going across the entire skeleton of as many animals as we can with hundreds and hundreds of characters, uh, scoring these different characters. Oh, how many teeth are in the lower jaw, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, that ultimately takes months, years of uh, working in museums on specimens that have already been uh, collected and prepared uh, over the last 150 years of exploration. So uh, that's one part of it. Wow, that sounds like incredibly detailed work. Okay, so there have been, including this major extinction event at the end of the Cretaceous period, five identified major 
extinction events in the history of Earth. Our current climate crisis has been described as potentially a sixth major extinction event. There's even a a book that was written, a popular book uh, called The Sixth Extinction. With the rate of species extinctions that are happening now much higher than at other times in Earth's history, do you agree that what species are experiencing right now is an extinction event that's comparable to what happened 66 million years ago? Do you think there's evidence that that this is kind of the same thing? You know, as someone who works in deep time, I think that's challenging. I think that's a challenging question to answer um, because we don't have all the data. Now, when we do have all the data, it's too late. So, you know, it's, it's something to think about, you know, we as a species are causing extinction to happen all around us. And the moral question that we have to ask ourselves is what we're going to do about it. You know, whether we want to classify this as a mass extinction, you know, it doesn't, to me, at least, this is my opinion, uh, it doesn't really matter right now. It very well could be a mass extinction unless we alter our behavior. Yeah, it is a tricky question. And that kind of feeds into this idea that I think about a lot because I'm a population and community ecologist. So I work in much shorter time scales than you do. For sure. And I think about questions um, kind of in the context of ecological time scales versus evolutionary time scales. And when we talk about the causes of extinction associated with our current climate crisis, I think those drivers can be measured on an ecological timescale. And then possibly the consequences have to be measured on an evolutionary timescale. So how long would you say that extinction event that that killed off so, you know, many species right at the end of the Cretaceous period? How long was that? Was that millions of years or was that a shorter ecological event? You know, it definitely seems like it was a shorter ecological event. There's actually um, a study uh, out of my PhD uh, program at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, There was a group that actually went and cored the the impact crater, the Chicxulub impact crater. And uh, they went through not just the crater uh, itself, the, the rocks that were disturbed, but they actually were able to sample the uh, the sediment that was then deposited in the crater. And it was clear that in the years following the impact, it was a very difficult time in that part of the Gulf of Mexico. Um, but you do get recovery on thousands of years, uh, you know, maybe hundreds of years, but definitely on a thousands of year time scale. But uh, it really depends on what scale you're talking about. For microorganisms in a marine environment, uh, basically the plankton, uh, that recovery is in thousands of years. Now for a pl- uh, you know, planktonic organisms, thousands of years is very much evolutionary time. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And for large animals, large terrestrial animals, for example, um, that recovery we know was millions and millions of years. Um, you, you, it takes quite a while before you start getting large, uh, large vertebrates, uh, on land again, especially on the scale of, you know, anything close to the dinosaurs, uh, in the marine environment, mosasaurs, you know, uh, were doing quite well, coming to dominate the marine ecosystems over the last 
30 or so million years of the Cretaceous, they're gone right after that. And so from 66 million years ago until you get the first whales evolving tens of millions of years later, you've got the apex predators in the oceans being basically sharks and large fish. So recovery was definitely on evolutionary timescales. Um, yeah, e even if you're talking about the microorganisms as well. Certainly, um, if human beings were to cause the extinction of all the species that we depend on, it's not like we can have any sort of expectation that we would be able to recover those after an ecological event. Is that a silly thing to say? I mean, uh, no, I think that's very accurate. I think, uh, and, you know, I, I would take it a step further even and say that uh, we're, you know, overconfident in ourselves if we think we would survive such an extinction event ourselves. That's very interesting because I do hear very often, um, I, I feel like in, in common political discourse that technology will save us and we'll be able to reverse it or to figure it out or to adapt to it because we have the ability to build technologies. But at the end of the day, we do depend on our ecosystems just like every other species on this planet. And if they're not there and we can't get them back, well, we might be in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, the paleontologist in me says that, uh, you know, ultimately it will be for the next, uh, intelligent beings that are paleontologists themselves to, uh, figure out, uh, what we did wrong and, uh, and how we, uh, went extinct, uh, associated with the events that we are bringing on ourselves. <laughs> yeah. It's very scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. So one major difference that strikes me between what's happening now and what happened at the end of the Cretaceous period is that now our climate is warming rapidly. And if it continues to an extreme, species on Earth could be experiencing something that might actually be similar to what the climates were like at the Cretaceous period. And then what happened was the climate cooled very rapidly into an ice age. What groups have you noticed are more well adapted? You said turtles. I think people often think about crocodiles. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Turtles, uh, crocodilians seem to do quite well. Uh, the, you know, there are definitely exceptions uh, to all of those rules. It's tough to make generalizations about broad groups. I've seen yeah, definitely some of these uh, groups of turtles and some crocodilians that are quite resilient to environmental changes. Uh, but then, you know, individual species, yeah, that go extinct pretty quickly when uh, any sort of change happens. So, you know, one thing I would say with caution, uh, when looking at the modern ecosystem with regards to the past is that, you know, that understanding of a true, a true niche, uh, you know, uh, what the entire extent of what an organism is, uh, you know, uh, can withstand as far as changes in its, uh, uh, environment. Um, that's very, it's hard to track. And, uh, you know, that's uh, honestly one reason why having folks working on modern biology like yourself, uh, you know, talking to folks that are working, uh, in deep time, uh, like me, uh, that I think uh, can help uh, when we start to think about which taxa are going to be more resilient um, to environmental change. 
All right. I have one more kind of general line of questioning for you. Okay. So one thing that has always struck me as odd is that within the media and within politics and within, I think, just our social zeitgeist in general, the struggle to adopt or enforce behaviors to mitigate our current climate change is often described as saving the planet. And as an example, even this past Saturday, I was watching Saturday Night Live and on their very well-known segment of Weekend Update, they had one of their actors, A.D. Bryant, dress up like Mother Earth and talk about how how angry she was. And, you know, she said sassy things and it was very cute about how we're messing up Mother Earth. And that's so weird to me because the planet does not care. <laughs> the planet is going to uh, orbit the sun exactly the same number of times that it would have before, exist for exactly the same number of billions of years, regardless of what's living on it. And what we're actually trying to protect is ourselves and the ecosystems as they exist now that we're evolved to live in. And I think that that's kind of a misconception that people have about how important this is for human beings. So I guess that wasn't much of a question so much as something that irritates me. But do you have <laughs> do you have an opinion on something like that, on, on kind of the way that this conversation gets framed? Yeah, absolutely. You should write for Saturday Night Live for first uh, for one thing. <laughs> well, um, agreed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I, in the grand scheme of things, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this: yeah, uh, when you work in deep time, you really get this perspective that we are a blip. We are a drop in the bucket of Earth's history. Uh, now we are agents of geologic change, and uh, you know. Are there examples of species in the past that, you know, can alter the planet on our scale? Absolutely not. But yeah, uh, it's it's less about saving Mother Earth to me uh, as it is uh, maintaining a, an environment that is livable for us in, you know, for generations to come. Right now, we're at a point where the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is higher than it's been at any point in the evolutionary history of humans. We've never experienced atmospheric levels of carbon dioxide this high in the history of our species. The last time our CO2 levels were this high, uh, there were plants, there were trees growing on Antarctica. We don't see trees growing on Antarctica today. So, um, you know, how, do, do, the question to me, do we really want to run the experiment of seeing how adaptable humans are. If you want to run that experiment, then go for it. But, uh, you know, if, uh, if we want to be in a world where, you know, uh, the environmental conditions are more similar to those in which we evolved, then we need to scale things back a lot. So my understanding is that Homo sapiens, human beings, we're a pretty young species, right? So can Absolutely. you can you comment on how long is the average existence of a species and how does that compare to how long human beings have existed? Oh, that's a good question. I um I'm I'll pull a number out of my head. I want to say there uh, there have been some studies that I remember seeing presented uh, in a conference or in a paper one time, something like the uh, the average species 
is, you know, exists for around a million years, something like that. Um, that may be high, that may be low. Uh, it's a challenge to make that generalization because you see so much variation. Um, but let's say, let's pretend the average species is around for a million years. And let's highball that because the vast majority of species in the fossil record, we don't have that long of evidence for. Humans have been around for about a quarter of that. We're having a uh, quarter life crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think uh, that's pretty much what we're uh, experiencing, I guess. Uh, so, so we're not uh, not even close. I, w- I would just say it, it's hard to you know, put a number on the average species duration just because if we compare us to other species, it might be a little bit on you know, somewhere in the middle, uh, you know, versus smaller organisms versus larger organisms. That's tough to say. That That's one thing to think about, though, is that we are not immune to ecological and evolutionary pressures. We could be getting close to the end of our time on this planet, uh, or we could be a quarter of the way there, or, you know, who knows? Well, Dr. Joshua Lively, thank you so much for talking with me today. It has been so interesting. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was wonderful. Thank you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio with support from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. If you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Ashley Rohde. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.